grab your Bibles, and why don't you flip over to the book of Hebrews, and uh, we're going to get back into the book of Hebrews. I, I have been excited ever since we started the, uh, the book of Hebrews, but I am even more so as we gathered, or as I gathered the thoughts and the understanding for today, and I believe that, uh, in fact, um, Sister Sharon She's in there, and if I don't have anybody else to talk to, then then she gets to hear it. She may not like it, but she gets to hear it, and so I kind of preach to her some of the things that that we were studying. I just I love the Word of God. I don't know if I can truly enunciate that to where you understand it, but I love the Word of God. I love what it says. I love what it brings to uh, to my my knowledge, and 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 I love to be able to put it together. And so hopefully tonight. By the help of the Lord, it's his word, so I know his word isn't going to fail, but would he allow this human to uh, give us understanding? If you have your Bibles, I want you to um, turn with me, book of Hebrews chapter 7, and uh, if you will, I'm going to read through the, the third verse, and then we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about it, and then the writer Hebrews said to, to those that he was addressing. He said, you're just not quite ready. You're still in the milk of the word. You're still like babes in Christ. He said, but it's time to go forward. It's time to mature. And then as he ended the, the sixth chapter, he said, he said this. He said um, in verse 19 that we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is the second time uh, uh, that you have seen in the book of Hebrews this, this re- reference back to uh, this shadowy person by the name of Melchizedek. So let's, let's take some time to look. Going into, into chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, and, and uh, I mean, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And so it might be just a tad different from the King James there. But uh, it's been the Bible I've been studying most this year. And uh, so I wanted to continue that. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is... King of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And so I, I want us first off, before we go any further, we need to just kind of see about this uh, this Melchizedek. And I I think it would be good to uh, look there. If you have your Bibles, uh, would you turn to the book of Genesis? The book of Genesis chapter 14. Let's go to that actual uh, part of the Bible where we are introduced to this character called Melchizedek. And uh, again, I'm going to be pulling from my own study, pulling from Brother Daniel Seagrave's book, Hebrews, uh, Better Things. And so you may see me hold that book a time or two tonight uh, because I'm having a hard time keeping it open up here. All right, verse 17 of Genesis chapter 14. Here's where you see this this figure of Melchizedek. And you'll see very quickly that Melchizedek is a real person. I know there has been teaching, not necessarily here at this church, but there's a thought that that he was not real. He was a, 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 
you know, a visit from God. Uh, others have said he was an angel. But let me just help you out. He's a real person in a real period of time. And so I want you to see it. So uh, after his return, Abraham's return from the defeat of, I cannot for the life of me say that word. I've tried all afternoon, but that cheddar lomer or whatever it's supposed to be. The kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is in the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And he was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him, he being uh, Melchizedek, blessed Abraham and said, here's the blessing. Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. And Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted up my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven, lest uh, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you would say I've made Abraham rich. And uh, king of Sodom is different from king of, of Salem. I just wanted to kind of flesh out that, that story a little bit. And again, there's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of people that, that would try to say that Melchizedek is something other than, than a, a true human, but that's not true. When it says in the Bible that he was of, if we go back to the, to the book of Hebrews, when it says that he was of an unknown genealogy or without father or mother, uh, that, that doesn't mean that, that he didn't exist. Melchizedek is the king of Salem. And I don't know if you know this, but Salem in that ancient time is what we now know as Jerusalem. Jerusalem has always had a presence there and throughout the ages, names have changed, but it's been the same city, if you will, as it grows. And the city existed here in the time of Abraham. Later, during David's reign, David consolidates his kingdom there in Jerusalem. And, and as you keep going, you find that Jerusalem plays an a integral part to Jesus and his story here on earth. And, and Melchizedek was the king. It's the same sense of the word that you read other places in this time. It's not, don't, don't think king with a huge uh, kingdom and throne room. He was a chieftain, a tribal chieftain, if you will, king there. Melchizedek was also the priest of the Most High God. Very often when we think of priests, we, we invariably go back to the Mosaic Covenant because that's where we see priests. The high priest that goes once a year behind the veil. The high priest that would offer up the sacrifice. But throughout the Bible before that covenant on Mount Sinai, there were other priests. Although we may not know all the details and we may not know everything. For example, in Moses' life, you have Jethro, his father-in-law. And the Bible says he was a priest, a priest of God. It doesn't identify Job as a priest, but you find that Job, a contemporary of Abraham in that same time period, in the book of Job, Job offered sacrifices and, and performed the work of a priest. And so we're, we're, we're getting to this place where the writer of Hebrews has already identified that, that Jesus is greater than the angels, that Jesus is greater than the prophets, that Jesus is greater than uh, uh, Aaron's priesthood and that lineage of the, of the Levite priesthood. And, and, and now we're getting into Jesus, the high priest. 
after this, we're going to enter into a time where the writer of Hebrews, not tonight, but later on, we're going to get to the place in, the, in Hebrews where the writer of Hebrews begins to take the tabernacle and different things and aspects of the tabernacle and lays that out and says what you have in the, in the, in the right now, you know, what, what you have as a Jewish believer in the tabernacle or the temple, all of those simply point to Jesus. And so we'll see that. Jesus is the, the high priest. But if you're going to be a high priest, and it's inherent to being a priest, you have to be like the ones you represent. It, it, and so one of the things here that we want to talk about is that Melchizedek was a real person. Because if Melchizedek was not a real person, and, and, and God says that, that, this is, that, that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, if Melchizedek was not a real person, then the priesthood that Jesus brings would have to be one that was not of a human nature. But we spent time, go back and listen to some of the sermons that we've preached on this in the, week, in the weeks uh, previous, that it's absolutely important that we have a high priest that has been touched by the feelings of our infirmities. He knows what we're going through. It just makes a big difference. Several things happened here. Uh, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. For Melchizedek to bless Abraham, then that means Melchizedek was superior, if you will, to Abraham. He said, blessed be Abraham of God most high. And blessed be God most high. Abraham gave Melchizedek a tithe, a tenth of the spoils that he had gotten. It's very interesting, it's very significant that you see these, this tithe given long before it was required by the law. And I'm going to explain that in a moment. And so uh, even before there was a law given, there were people that, that because of their love to God understood the concept of the tithe. And, uh, and so that, that's why if someone ever looks at you and says, well... Uh, tithing, you know, it, it's not, that, that's an Old Testament thing, it's, a, it's under the law, you can just take them before the law ever was, that that was a principle, principle there. Um, one of the things that is so interesting is the name Melchizedek, now I don't speak uh, Hebrew, and so I'll, I'll mutilate these very, very much, but the name Melchizedek is a, a compound name, the first one is, is Malik, if I will, and that means king. The second one, with which I can't truly pronounce, but it's the Kesedic part of that nature, means of righteousness. That, that Melchizedek was the king of righteousness. He was also the king of Salem. Salem um, uh, uh, means, is, it, it's transliterated as shalom. You've heard that, that Hebrew uh, greeting, uh, shalom, it means peace. So when, when we begin to talk about, if, if you were a, a Hebrew in this time, and they said Melchizedek, they would have immediately said, oh, he's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. That makes Melchizedek uniquely suited to be a forerunner of Jesus Christ, our king of righteousness, our king of peace. You can just go back to Isaiah. You shall call his name Wonderful Counselor, the Almighty God, the Prince of Peace. When it says he's without genealogy, it doesn't mean that he didn't exist. It just simply means there's no record of his genealogy. And this is important. I, I, I was reading today in, in some of my, my readings, not even for, for today, just some of my devotional readings. I got into the book of Ezra. Ezra is when the, uh, 
they are returning, or some of them are returning from captivity. And then you have Ezra and Nehemiah, both of them are contemporaries. And during that time, they're rebuilding the temple. And so here they've been, they, I mean, Israel had sunk so low in idolatry and, and sin that, that if you read, go read Ezekiel and you'll find what they were doing in the house of the Lord. They had just absolutely thrown everything that was holy out and just were committing unspeakable acts in the, the temple. And so God said, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm done. Y'all are all, you're, you know, you're going into captivity. I read somewhere, and I, I can't pull it right now. I want to say it's in Ezekiel. But it said that, that uh, because they did not honor the rod, he turned them over to the sword, that rod of correction. Because they wouldn't bend when God would try to help them. God said, fine, you're just going to have to die off or you're going to be done. Well, they come back. Ezra brings people back. He gets out the law. He reads the law. Some of these people had never even heard the law preached. But one of the things that Ezra found is he said, hey, we need a priest. If we're going to rebuild the temple, we need priests. And they began to look around, and they kept very good records of that Levitical priesthood. And even today, there are, there are those that absolutely, beyond a shadow of a doubt, can trace their lineage all the way back to the Levitical priesthood, which is why in, in some point in time, they will rebuild the temple on top of the mount. And, and it's not going to be just any priest. They're going to say, these are the priests that come after the order of, of the, the, the Levitical priesthood. Ezra said, I can't find any priests. And so they got out the genealogical records. They began to look through it. They had to go send for some people that weren't there that were part of those, those uh, Levitical priesthoods. You have to understand that the, that the priesthood that started with Mount Sinai was one that had to be, the only way you could receive that priesthood is if you had a genealogy that went back to, to Levi. Melchizedek didn't have that. Now Melchizedek had a father and a mother and grandparents. He had a genealogy, but no one knows what it is. And the point there is very simple. That Jesus coming as a high priest, not after the order of the, of the Levites. He doesn't have a genealogy. You know, he, he's not a high priest just because he was uh, born to the right family. That's not what it meant. It meant that there was a a, def, a, 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 a that it didn't depend on being a Levite. When it says that there's no record of the beginning of his days or the end of his life, again, we're not talking about the death, we're not talking about the birth, we're just simply talking about the office, the job that Melchizedek did. Because here's the thing, if Melchizedek didn't have a mom, then it would be pointless for Jesus to be after the order of Melchizedek. Because Jesus can trace a human lineage back to a virgin named Mary. Jesus had a human. But the point was simple. We're not doing this like the old covenant. In fact, you're going to find in just a minute, Jesus absolutely says, I'm bringing to you a new covenant. We are going to void the old covenant on Mount Sinai. And we're going to bring a new one. The verse there, uh, the, the part in, that we read that says he remains a priest continually again that doesn't mean that Melchizedek lived forever and you know was a priest but in, in uh, the Mosaic law when a priest turned 50 years old they, they, they had to retire it was forced retirement so when a priest turned 50 years old they were forced out of the work of being a priest 
And so here it's just the point that, that Jesus, there's not going to be an end to his priesthood. There's not a point where, where you force Jesus out and say, we need another high priest. In fact, the entire Levitical priesthood was one built on succession. That Aaron was going to reach a certain age and his sons were going to come. They were going to reach a certain age and their sons were going to come on and on and on. But when Jesus steps on the scene, there is nobody coming after. There's no plan B. There's nobody that can succeed him. The high priesthood of Jesus is not dependent on the law of Moses. It's completely separate from there. Let's, let's go on a little bit further. Let's read verse 4 through 7 of Hebrews chapter 7. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from the brothers, though they, these are also descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And again, it's just, it's just one more thing to say Melchizedek was superior to Abraham. You say, why is this important? It doesn't matter to us. We're, we're uh, Gentiles. But if you were to go right now to, to those that practice and those Jews that practice, you ask them, say, who is the most important uh, uh, forerunner of your life? They would say Abraham. It was Abraham that got the promise that of his seed would be a great nation. And so people, uh, the, the Jews, they would always go back to Abraham and say, if Abraham did it, I've got to do it, if you will. If Abraham did it, I've got to do it. And so I wanted to just kind of say there is someone better than Abraham. And in doing so, he identifies Jesus as one like Melchizedek. And Melchizedek was uh, a man greater than Abraham. And when it says that Abraham gave him a tenth of the spoils, that Hebrew word there means from the top of the heap, if you will, the choice spoils, the very best spoils of that battle that they had fought uh, that you see there in Genesis chapter 14. And so he gave it to them, and, and it was. Melchizedek as a priest was uh, a part and different from the lineage of Levi and he received those tithes from, the, uh, uh, from Abraham. Now, interesting, look at verse 8 through 10. Let me be a little slow for a moment, and then we're going to pick up. Let me just get through this. But look at verse 8 through 10. In one case, tithes are received by mortal men. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. And again, it's just kind of saying this. You know, here you have the... Uh, here you have the, the Levitical priesthood and people would bring tithes to uh, those, those priests there, the Levitical priesthood. But it was just kind of making the statement that if you will, all of those came from Abraham. Whether you were the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Reuben, Gad, Levi, you were from Abraham. And so here it just simply says that uh, if Abraham felt that he was inferior to Melchizedek, in so much that he paid tithes to Melchizedek, then anyone that was of Abraham's lineage would be inferior to that king of righteousness and that king of Salem. And so uh, 
uh, it was just the writer of Hebrews reminding all, a lot like uh, Paul did in the, in the book of Romans, where he, he tried to tell him that, I don't care if you're a Jew, I don't care if you can trace it all the way back to Abraham, you still need repentance and salvation. And that's where it is. But let's begin to look, because I, I, this is where I want to have some fun, chapter 7, verse 11, because what happens here is if the priesthood changes... If the requirements of that high priest have changed, then so is the law. And this is so very important. So let's read uh, 11 and 12. Now if perfection had been obtainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, then what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. And I want you to to hang with me. People would say that that the the law of Moses was essential to them. and, And they would say that you can't have a priesthood without the covenant. And you can't have a covenant without the priesthood. They, they They would say that neither can exist without the other. I've wrapped my mind around this over the last three or four months, and I can't tell you that I understand it all. But, But from the very beginning on the top of Mount Sinai, God knew that law that he gave on those Ten Commandments was not the end all. If If they would have done everything and never messed up, Their life would have been better, but there would still be need of a Savior. How do I know that? Because you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 3, where the fall is is recorded, and, and there's that promise right there to Satan that one day this seed that comes of a woman, you're gonna bruise his heel, you're gonna strike at his heel, but he's gonna crush your head. We had that promise of a Savior long before anything else. And so this priesthood, God never intended the priesthood and the, and the, the Levitical priesthood to be the end all. In fact, I will tell you today that the law is incapable of changing a person. And I, if you don't get anything out of this tonight, I want you to listen carefully. The law can't change you. It's the whole premise of, of Romans chapter 7. The law can't change you. And so it is that now we have a, if there's a change of priesthood, there is a different covenant. Jesus did not come to just bring the Mosaic covenant along. Jesus didn't come just to add a few little lines to what he gave on Mount Sinai and suddenly everything comes. No, he said, I've come to bring something new. Now if you were to ask the people, and this is the problem, of the Hebrew of those these Hebrews, they would have said that that Aaron's priesthood, that Levitical priesthood, was superior to anything because it came after Melchizedek. You know how we think: if something comes after, it's better, right? When the iPhone comes out and you have a perfectly good iPhone six and the iPhone seven in your mind, you just assume it's got to be better. Not necessarily. And the point that we're trying to make is that Jesus was better before and Jesus is better after. 
You can't look and say, oh, Jesus is just coming and, and, and it's there. But that's why they said Jesus was after the, the, uh, the, the order of Melchizedek. This change of the law. It's not that the law was revised. It's not that the law was updated. It means that the law, and I'm going to use a word that I'm still trying to, to, to say correctly, and I think I'm saying it right, but if you that word change in the Greek, uh, we would use the word, and I've never used this word in my life, but I've, I've read it, that the law was abrogated. It means it was abolished by formal means. I don't know if I can get this across well. Have any of you ever entered into a contract? Whatever contract. Just, have you ever entered into a formal contract that had clauses? And somewhere on your side or the other side, one of the clauses was broken. And it voided the contract. Has anybody ever been in something like that? Maybe it was a house you wanted to buy. And maybe you, 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 signed, uh, you, you signed the paper, I'm going to buy that house. But the clause was, I'm going to get that house inspected. And you were ready to buy that house. You had, you had signed your name on there. The inspector comes and finds that it's eaten with termites. And the contract is broken. The law of Moses was a contract between God and man. In fact, if you read it, he would say, if you do this, I will bless you. What that meant is that if they did this, there was a blessing from God. But there was another side of that. If you don't do this, then I'm not going to bless you. This law of Moses, this covenant of Moses had been broken. Not by, G, not by God, but by the own, uh, the, the humanity. They had, they had sinned. Every commandment they broke. They, they were breaking them before the commandment even got finished printing on that rock printer up there on, the, on Mount Sinai. I, it blows my mind as I read the, book, the, the Bible. You'll find times where, you know, they, they've gone into this long period of decline. And then somebody brings out the law. And they all say, oh, we've heard the law. We will do exactly what the law says. And then the very next verse, the very next chapter, they slide right back into it. God said, I'm not coming to try to patch up this broken covenant. I've come to abolish it. In fact, the Bible uses this word. It, 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 he, he said, I've divorced Israel. It was a formal di divorcement, a formal separation. In, in biblical times, if you want a divorce, there had to be a, a paper, a contract signed, and you could get that. And uh, so, so the Lord said, I've, I'm divorcing Israel. The contract has been broken. But something new is coming. Look at verse 13 and 14. For the one of whom these things are spoken. We're talking about Jesus, the high priest. For the one in whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. You can see in, in, in the lineage of Jesus, he comes from the tribe of Judah. The law of Moses said the only ones that could ever serve as a priest was going to be that from the tribe of Levi. But here's just one more termination of Moses' law. 
Because now it's not going to be the tribe of Levi, but it's going to be the tribe of Judah. It's interesting that the tribe of Judah, that was where the kings were to come from. That, the, that when, when David shows up, the Lord gives David a, a promise and he says, Of your lineage, the tribe of Judah will never, de- or the kingship will never depart from the tribe of Judah. And you can start looking throughout it all. It goes down all the way to the king of kings, Jesus himself. The significant thing is in Moses' law, a king and a priest could not be the same. That Levi had charge of the priesthood, but Judah, the tribe of Judah, had charge of the kings. They were separated. This This is why King Uzziah is very interesting. King Uzziah was one who wanted to be king and priest at the same time. In fact, that's really why Uzziah died. Isaiah said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And his train filled the temple. And he sat on a throne. It's an it's a, 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 a incredible superstition in Scripture. Uzziah was a king who tried to offer a sacrifice and fire that he was not allowed to offer. And he died. But Jesus comes, the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the Prince of peace and the, the priesthood because Mount Sinai and that covenant doesn't matter anymore. We're getting something new. Look at verse 15, if you will. This becomes more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's a, here's just a quote from Psalms chapter 110, and it's just a quote that is a messianic promise. Again, Jesus didn't assume the priesthood because he checked off some legal requirements. The priesthood of Jesus is not one that just kind of happened because you were born right. This is something brand new. Look at verse 18. Let me just kind of take it for for a minute. We'll we'll get into something different. Uh, But on the other hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness And uselessness, verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Here they're saying, you know what, let's throw away that absolutely useless, weak covenant that was there because the law never made anything perfect. But now we're introducing another hope through which we draw near to God. I want you just to get in your mind, I think you can, think of, of Moses' law in the Levitical priesthood. That entire Levitical priesthood and law and covenant was one of keep your distance. You don't have access to God on high, so to speak. You can't go beyond the, the, the veil. You can't see the glory of God most times. It's, it's bring it to a priest. The priest will take it from you and he'll go do that. He'll be that mediator if you will. But everything about the new covenant, the whole reason when Jesus died on the cross that the veil was rent, number one, it, it showed everybody that there was really nothing behind the veil. It showed the emptiness of that Jewish belief because they had lost the Ark of the Covenant. 
They didn't have anything back there. It was just an a, a, a empty religion at that point. But it allows you and I to draw nigh to God. Aren't you glad you can come to church and be in his presence? I mean, I'm glad you come and you hear preaching and you need preaching and I need preaching. But I can tell you right now, I can be in my car and the presence of God can be just as real in my car as it is in the biggest church service I've ever been in. Because the new covenant is not one of distance, but one of connection, one of closeness. It says it was not made without an oath. For those who were formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made priest with an oath by the one who said to him. And again, this is Psalms 110 verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Those other priests, there was no oath given. Those other priests literally became priests because they were born in the right family. And you can go through your Bible and read that just because you're born of a, of a certain family doesn't mean that you're going to succeed. Eli's sons didn't follow him when they should have. You can go through it uh, all. You'll see. But the, God made an oath. You can read it in Psalms chapter 110. It said there's coming a priest forever after the order. Melchizedek. The former priests were many, verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in the office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. I'm going to do my very best to explain this. I was... Gotten, got excited and uh, Sister Sharon and I, we were talking. But you know, every once in a while, Brother Richardson, I know you, you study, you know the word. But every once in a while, you might can understand it, but not understand it. That's why the Bible says great is the mystery of godliness. I don't understand how God can just be, but I know he is. Let me show you something. Um. God is, is uh, the Bible says that, first off, all those high priests, there was a lot of them because they would die and they would get old and so it came, but, but there's only one. Jesus holds his priesthood permanently. He continues forever and therefore he can save to the uttermost. I mean, he can save to the end of time those that come through him, through him. Um, we've talked a lot that the, the beauty of the incarnation that we're gonna, we celebrate, we're already in that whole mode right now of Christmas. The beauty of that incarnation, we talk about that it's because a, a God in all of the incredible deity that he is, he was all God, took on himself. He didn't change, he didn't split himself, but he took on a complete human existence. You know that old hymn, that's the, the, and, and we sang it, uh, uh, I think, a few weeks ago, down from his glory. You know that part of the song that says, what condescension bringing us redemption? You, you know how we, we, we talk about things like he gave up a throne for a cross. You know that kind of talk? That God left the splendor of heaven and walked on the Sea of Galilee. Let me try to paint it in a, in a different picture. We know 
that God is omnipresent, meaning he is everywhere. But we also know the physical body of Jesus cannot be everywhere. That Jesus himself would say that. I can't be there. I'm not there. And so God humbled himself in the incarnation. That God said, I'm going to give myself spatial limitations. And we see that in the humanity. The one that was everywhere put himself here. Now, it didn't mean that... that when, God, when, when Jesus walked in Galilee, that over in Damascus there was no God around. We understand that. He's still God everywhere. But just understand what it really means for the God of everywhere to say, I'm going to come down and be just one place. That God is omniscient, meaning he knows everything. But when he took on himself a human uh, 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 nature... Jesus, in Mark chapter 13, verse 32, Jesus said, I don't know everything. What condescension. In the incarnation, God humbled himself to in times have limited knowledge in that incarnation. Now, how all these things happen, mm, I don't exactly know. It's far beyond my comprehension. But it's why it's the greatest miracle that can ever occur. I've heard the doctor look at my father and say, I don't understand how this happened, but the cancer that's in your body is no more. And I dance jigs all around the church. And it's easy for me to say, I don't understand how it happened, but I believe it. Can I tell you today, I don't understand how a God of everywhere can say, I'm going to become like you and put some limitations there. I don't understand it all, but this I do know, that God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, and received up into the glory. And all of that is great, is the mystery of godliness. Faith, listen, and I, let me, let me, in fact, let me read this from, from Dr. C. Graves. Faith does not ask us to believe things that are irrational. It asks, asks us to believe things that are supra-rational. Let me explain. It would be irrational to say that Jesus is God, but he is not God. Those contradict themselves. But to say that Jesus is fully God and he is fully man, they don't contradict each other. Those are two positive statements. And though you and I may not understand everything about that, from our perspective, our minds may not be able to wrap around that. We can see that with God, the Bible says, all things are possible. A lot of people have struggled to formulate the theology of Jesus. Many times those, theolo those th theological statements, uh, uh, they, they deal with the negative, what he is not. But I want to tell you that when, when the psalmist wrote Psalms 110, the Messiah had not yet come. He had not yet assumed the priesthood. But if you look in Psalms 110, the Lord said unto his Lord, and if you look in that in your Bible, the first Lord is all capitalized, that's Yahweh. The second Lord is lowercase, that's Adonai. 
Meaning that God said to, if you will, the humanity. It was a, it, it was a, a promise. It was an oath. You are a priest forever. According to the order of Melchizedek. If you would ask a Hebrew to explain the grammar there, they would say, they would use this term. It's prophetically perfect. God speaks of things that have not yet come as if they are. Because God knows beyond a shadow of a doubt it will happen. I, I may end it right here just, just to... Just, just to uh, not get too deep there, but have you ever wondered what happened to Jesus when he ascended there on that mountain? All the disciples and those looking up at him as he went back to heaven. Have you ever wondered what happened to Jesus when the clouds covered him up? You ever even thought about that? Because I'll tell you right now, when, when Peter stood on that mountain and looked and watched Jesus leave, that was Jesus. He had touched that. He had seen the nail prints in his hand. They had thrust a, a hand into Jesus' side. This was not some different thing going up. It was Jesus. Can I tell you that the permanence of the priesthood of Jesus Christ means that the incarnation is permanent. Because if a priest ever dies and there's no one to succeed him, you lost the mediator of that covenant. And so if when Jesus went up in heaven and they closed and, and, and that humanity, if you will, disappeared, then how are you and I saved today? When it says that Jesus is the high priest forever, even to the ends of the earth, what it means is he doesn't give up that human existence he received. And so I don't understand how it is. I don't understand what it all means. But can I tell you that Jesus Christ is alive and well today. It's not that that was just a, a, a 33 and a half year old period that God you know, kind of tried this thing out and then now, it, no, no, no. When Jesus went to heaven, when you and I get to heaven, the Bible says we're going to see him as he is. And I truly believe that I'll be able to put my hands exactly where Thomas put his hands. And I'll be able to put my hands on some nail scars there because the cross and all of the sacrifice that was there was not just for a day on a hill of Golgotha, but it was there for Peter. It was there for Paul. It was there for Cornelius. It was there for those in the second century. It was there for those in the third century. It was there for my great-grandmother. It was there for my grandparents. It was there for my parents. And back in, in 1987, I believe, it was there for me. When I knelt down at an altar, I went to a high priest, and I didn't have anything to bring. I didn't have any type of, of offering that I could give for my sin. But there it was. The lamb for sinners slain. Now this doesn't mean that, that everyone is forgiven just because he died. This doesn't erase the requirement of you and I to do what Peter said. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. 
This doesn't mean that he did something and now you can do whatever you want to do and anyone that ever won is born is, is saved. That's not what it means. But what that sacrifice on, on, the, uh, on, on Calvary did, what that sacrifice did was that one sacrifice was sufficient. All right, I, I got to go into it. Y'all just going to have to help me for a moment. That, look at verse 18. I've already read that. I've already read that. Look at verse, verse 23. No, no, no. Look at verse 26. For it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin and then for the sin of the people. For what he did, for, for since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Those priests... They would come and they would have to offer a sacrifice every day. I read it and somewhere somebody tried to do some research how much blood had been spilled in the Old Testament and even perhaps into the New. And they came up with billions of gallons of blood that had been, that had been a, a shed. But this old law is not going to continue. In verse 22, you see that word covenant. 17 times in the book of Hebrews, that covenant is mentioned. It means that the covenant of Moses, like I said earlier, and I don't have time to go over it, but that, that, that we said earlier, God said that covenant's null and void. You didn't uphold the law. You couldn't handle the law. It couldn't help you. It, it just didn't do anything. And so, so I, I'm, that, that's done. And we're bringing a new covenant. A new mediator. Those priesthood, those priests that served in the Levitical priesthood, they were mortal and their priesthood terminated. But now we have an unchangeable priesthood, one that is permanent forever and ever and ever. He stands in complete solidarity with you and I. He knows what you and I have gone through. But watch what it says. He was holy. Now many times we think holy as being separated, but this isn't the case. This word here is a little bit different. This word means loyal love. It means that they, they were loyal to the covenant obligation. Let me give you an idea. Uh, there, well, no, Sister Morgan's here. I don't know if Andy's here. In, uh, on, on Saturday, I'm going to talk about holy matrimony. Now we can say, yeah, when you get married, you're separate, you're, you're set apart from anybody else and keep yourself only for yourselves, and I understand that's true. But to be honest, that word holy means that because I love, I will keep the obligation of the covenant. And Jesus says, because I love you, I will keep that obligation. And I will do everything 
this new covenant requires. Even so much that I'll go to the cross when every fiber of my being screams no. You have to understand, even though the Romans put him on that cross, they didn't put him on that cross. He could have snapped his fingers and just like that, he'd have walked himself off that cross and they wouldn't have touched him. He laid his life because he was holy, that holy, that loyal love. The Bible says harmless. It means that he was not evil in any way. And, and, and while we mean not to do harm on somebody, sure, that's what harmless means. But this, if you read other translation, it would say guileless, meaning that he, he was without cunning. He was innocent, not only of doing something wrong, but even to think of doing something wrong. He never even had a thought to do something wrong. If someone spit on him, if, when, when someone slapped him, he didn't think, well, I'm not going to hit you, but it sure would be nice. That separates him from you and I because there's a lot of sins you've committed. You just never did them. Because the Bible says if you think about committing adultery or you think about getting angry, you've already committed, adultery, uh, you've already committed murder. Jesus didn't even think about it. He was harmless. He's undefiled. He resisted every part of the, of the devil to, to try to change him. There was no deceit found in his mouth. He committed no sin. When they reviled him, he didn't revile back. He didn't threaten those. All of that, none of that, he was undefiled. He was separate from sinners. He was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. He associated with sinners. He, he ate with, with those that had done wrong. He had done all of that. But he refused to sin. That's the difference between you and I. He's the only one with a human existence that never sinned. He's higher than the heavens, the Bible says. He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. None of those is, an, is a location. It's just talking about his power and his authority. But here it is. Those Levitical priests every day had to offer sacrifices first for themselves. There's times, and, and, and I don't, I'm not bragging, or, or, or definitely not bragging, but just understand, there's times that before I preach, i got to say, Lord, you got to cleanse me. You know, maybe something happened. Maybe there's anger. Maybe there's, there's thoughts running my head. I'm just like those other priests. They had to offer sacrifices for themselves so that they could be clean before they could ever offer a sacrifice for someone else. But those sins that they offered sacrifice, while it allowed there to be forgiveness of sins, it never removed the sin. We use terms like it rolled them ahead a year, and I guess that's, that, that can be understood, but... The reality is, is they could be forgiven, but it was never erased. But Jesus offered one sacrifice that not only has the ability to forgive you of your sin, but to remove your sin. And since Jesus was fully human, he could die on behalf of humanity. Since he was completely sinless, he could die on behalf of the sinners. And since he was God, the value of that sacrifice surpasses the entire value of this world. He offered himself up. I want you to stand for a moment.
I, I, wanted, I wanted so bad to get into chapter 8, but it takes time. If I was to read chapter 8, verse 1, in the New King James Version, it would read something like this. Now this is the main point of the things we're saying. So we've spent seven chapters and we haven't even got to the main point. But that's because it's so important. Before we can get to what Jesus has truly done for you and I, you had to realize where he came. That Jesus is better than anything else. See, we, we have these arguments, at least us guys, we have this argument. Girls probably do too but different ways. We have these arguments. What's better, Ford, Chevy? You know? What's better, Coach or Dooney and Burke for you ladies? Whatever it is, I don't know. But until you establish beyond a shadow of a doubt what is the better, superior thing, it's kind of pointless to talk about what it does. And so here, we just kind of wanted to tell you that Inferior things are superseded by greater things. If God says, let's get rid of the Mosaic law, He's not going to replace it with something that's inferior. He's going to replace it with something that is far better. And this was the problem with the book of Hebrews. There were those that have tasted of the new covenant that were wanting to go back to the old. Why in the world? Would you go back to something that's been made null and void? Jesus is better. Lord willing, next week we'll get into it. And, and uh, I didn't even get into the part I wanted to get into. I want to talk about that Jesus is the high priest of the true tabernacle. And that's when you really start experiencing our salvation and kind of seeing what it is. You, you talk about that feeling you get when you sing those songs about the blood. Wait till you get into Hebrews chapter 8 and you see what Jesus really did for you. Oh, it's amazing. I wonder if we could lift our hands for just a moment. I wonder if you could just raise your hands that we've got a high priest that has done all of that for you and I. What a promise. I know you've already received it. I know you've already been a recipient of it. But why don't you think about it for a moment. Everything that he's done, he did for you. Even though it was 2,000 years ago. It's still as real today as it was then, and it matters today. Father, I love you. Lord, I thank you for letting me walk in your word and letting me see what all is wrapped up in it. God, let me keep growing forward. Let me keep maturing. Let me keep having this understanding. I know I've been saved, but now let me really understand what...